This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Wow, JP, I'm so um, delighted that you came up with this concept of the case I can't forget. What a brilliant concept. And I feel bad that we had to kind of cut it a little bit short. We had so many people wanting to be interviewed, but I obviously we can't go on indefinitely with this. Um, how, how did you come up with this idea anyways? It, it's such a cool idea. Like many things we do in this podcast, it, it's become a vehicle for me to just serve my own interests. I'm a very curious person. And when you're coming up in a field like neurosurgery that has such a history to it and I, I enjoy the history. I enjoy the prestige and, and the legend and that, that aspect of things. So when you're coming up in the field and you see these people who have been doing it for decades, the names that you see on landmark papers, the names you see in textbooks when you're first joining the field, me being me, when I meet those people, all I want to do is pick their brains. If you and our listeners haven't noticed yet, I can't shut my mouth and I love talking to people. And this podcast and this series in particular has become an excuse for me and a vehicle for me to ask questions of these luminaries in our field that in a normal social setting might be inappropriate. Like, hey, what, what's a time that you made a huge mistake that you just can't stop thinking about? Or, you know, when you first made an incision when you were a new attending, how did you feel in that moment? Neurosurgeons aren't really a touchy-feely group of people. And oftentimes being so junior it would be improprietous or rude to ask questions like this. So I, in short, I kind of came up with this series as an excuse to ask people like you uh, questions that I normally couldn't get away with. Well, I, I love that you're so curious. And I was really impressed in just, just about 10 episodes, the immense variety of the types of, of key issues within cases that got people uh, to think about this is the case I can't forget, but the common thread was really about um, the human side of things. You know, whether it was Anne Stroink talking about the um, you know the sense of community that she's in, and and the 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 the, the human part of doctoring, or John Yoon talking about a case that just spiraled into one complication after another, and and obviously his great concern for the well-being of that individual that, that that trusted him with his with her life I mean the, the humanity of it I think is you know we're such a technical field as you say but really most if not all neurosurgeons I know are incredibly concerned about the human condition whether it be the individual patient or society at large yeah and you know I think that there is kind of the other side of the coin for my curiosity and my interest in the inner workings of, of the neurosurgeon's mind, I think that at least I felt when talking to these people that they enjoy thinking about that stuff too. And they enjoy talking about it because as has come up a few times in this series, we're also pressed for time. You know, we, we had episodes where we, we talked about how there's no time to sit with patients like with uh, Dr. Chan, who was on. And I think that a lot of us do have a more contemplative side, do have a more you could say emotional side where we think about the human connections we make and the humans that we are treating, not just fixing someone's body, but the, the person that we're really operating on. And I at least felt that interviewing a lot of these people, they enjoyed the opportunity to reflect and revisit and, and share that side of their memories and their experiences that in the normal 
bluster and, and busy day-to-day life of neurosurgery and neurosurgical training, we just don't have time to talk about. Yeah, exactly, JP. I mean, I think that, that that's part of what makes our specialty so interesting. But the funny thing about it is that unlike other doctors, there are all these other features like like the, um, the technical pieces, like the technology that we have available. And the fact that the neurosurgery we do today is so different than even 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? That it's, it's always renewing and there's a lot of energy and economic power in it. Um, all of these other features that nobody really spoke about during this mini series, um, you know, that, that, that also draw young people to our field. But let me, I, I wanted to go a little further with this because, you know, you're, you're in training now and, and I don't want to say you're impressionable, but these are sort of some of your formative years as a physician. Um, do you have a case yourself that was one that just struck you just in the first, um, you're three years in, right? First three years um, that you just, you can't let go of, you can't forget that impacted you greatly? You know, there is. And it, it's interesting. I, I think it, it would be fair to say that I'm impressionable. I think anyone at, at the beginning of any endeavor is impressionable and little experiences and little deviations early on in, in a course can lead to huge differences in the endpoint of that course, right? Um, and so there, there is a case that I've been thinking about during this whole series. And to me, the, the, the one I wanted to share is a very positive case. It's a positive experience. And I wanted to talk about something with a good outcome, because as you may have noticed, a lot of the stories people share, understandably, were negative stories, because those things haunt us more, those things stick with us more. And so somewhat in contrast to that, there is a story from last year when I was a PGY2 taking call that from the moment it happened that night, I immediately knew, wow, I'm going to be thinking about this for decades. Save this one for the book one day if I ever write a book. Um, so I was a second year resident, which is like most uh, places where we take the most call in-house at Rush. And I was on one night and we have this uh, direct ICU transfer system called Two Brain because it's like a phone number extension. And we always get these alerts when there's one coming in and I get the alert, oh, there's an ICH coming in. And that's all the information we get. So then finally the patient arrives and it's uh, for neurosurgery, a young woman, she's in her late thirties about, and she's got a large ICH. It's on the right side. She's weak on the left side. Well, wait, let me stop you there and ask you. So that's a little unusual. I mean, I, when I see something like that, I'm thinking does she have, um, a, a drug use history? Is this a cocaine-induced hypertensive bleed? Is this a uh, aneurysm? Is this, you know, there's, is there some more fundamental defect that's, that's causing this? Right. And so all these things are racing through my mind. And I go see her and she's what we would casually call a, a normal lady. She, mm. as far as we can tell, no drug use. As far as we can tell, no underlying medical issues. She had her gallbladder out a couple years ago. And so we start thinking, what could be causing this? What could be causing this? We start working it up because on the scan, it's a big, big bleed. And so the first thing we do is we get a, an angiogram, a CTA, an angiogram, and she's got this strange distal M3 for our, our non-surgical listeners, a very distal an, uh, aneurysm on the right side, which is not somewhere that you typically see these things. Usually they're uh, more closer to the origin of these large arteries. And this one was pretty far out from where you would typically see these things. 
and a young patient like this. I get the story. She had been at home with her family and all of a sudden she just abruptly had a headache, got nauseous, vomited a few times, a typical picture for someone with a sudden spike in the pressure inside of the skull. And it just came out of nowhere. Like I said, no medical history, no inciting factors like drug use. And we see this weird, oddly positioned vascular abnormality. Wow. So, um, I mean, I'm thinking like mycotic aneurysm or something like that, right? Maybe she's got a history of infectious disease. It's, it's fascinating. Right. I mean, this is, this, it makes the doctoring so interesting to have so many unusual diseases that we see. Right. And that's the very next place that we think, because unlike typical aneurysms, when you have a mycotic or an infectious aneurysm, you usually do see them further down the line of, of the blood vessels like this. Uh, she hadn't been sick recently, doesn't use IV drugs, no big infections, nothing that would really make you think she's got some kind of systemic bloodborne infection that would induce something like this. So we get her back to her ICU bed. We notice that on the CTA, the hemorrhage itself has dramatically expanded from the first regular head CT when she came in. So even though she's awake, she's still following commands. She doesn't have hydrocephalus per se, so it's not something where you could do a ventriculostomy and decrease pressure. She needs to go to the operating room to have a decompressive procedure and try to control the source of this bleeding. So I'm calling her husband. I've been talking to this guy each step of the way. They have a few young kids at home. He doesn't know what's going on. It's, it's one of those situations I hate in the middle of the night where the last time he sees his wife, she just has a headache and feels nauseous. Then she goes to a hospital. And now the next update he gets is your wife has a massive intracranial hemorrhage. She needs a surgery. And I have to consent him for four things all at once at the same time as he's finding out this wasn't just a headache and food poisoning, right? And, and this is and during I, the pandemic, right? So he can't come in. Exactly. And that is the worst thing. You know, as junior residents, sometimes we joke morbidly that it makes life easier because we can do things more streamlined. We can do things over the phone. But really, when you're not in the thick of it and trying to get through a day and you sit down and you imagine being a family, it's the worst thing imaginable. And there are we've all heard stories, both from our personal lives and professional lives of people who have been in the hospital with serious injuries and even some who are dying, who their families aren't able to come see them. And they say goodbye with an iPhone over FaceTime. And that's just well, no, I, I've had a lot of interest in ICH when I was a resident. I thought that I would specialize in this because nobody cared about it. And I'm, I'm very familiar with the epidemiology. It's horrible. Almost 50 percent of people die. Uh, from an ICH, intracerebral hemorrhage, just all comers, right? So this is not a good disease to have, regardless of age. Not at all. And so, you know, each step of the way, I keep calling this uh, this husband. We very quickly get on first name basis, and I'm giving him updates throughout the night. And this guy really impressed me with his composure. I could I could tell talking to him, he's distraught, but the first few times we talk, his kids are present. He's got a sister who's with him and he's really holding it together. He's taking everything in stride. I can hear in his voice just the the quiet, gentle nods as I explain to him what's happening. You know, one phone call and we get the CTA, another phone call. And then I have consent for surgery. We're getting ready to wheel her down to the operating room. And then uh, some of the slower lab tests that we send off besides the blood work and the coagulation studies, some of the other things start trickling back and her urine comes back positive pregnancy test. Oh my God. Wow. 
Right. And so now I have to call this guy back again as she's being wheeled down to the operating room and find out, did they know? Were they trying? And and I assume they didn't know because you think he would have told me as we're talking about this. And so now, not only do I have to tell this guy, hey, it wasn't food poisoning and everything. Now I have to call and tell this person that his wife, who is in this scenario with this bleed, about to have a big brain surgery, and it's midnight. Oh, by the way, she's pregnant. And that was the point where his composure broke. And how he did just can I shape? Can I ask you what exactly did you even say to him? Like, how did you do you remember how you delivered that message? He, mostly, I'm sure I don't remember the exact words, but I make a very firm policy and I feel a moral imperative that when I talk to people in scenarios like this, I don't pull punches. I don't use fancy language. I speak very simply and very directly with as much conversational warmth and compassion as I can put in my voice. And so you basically I, say to him, listen, we're taking your wife to surgery. And by the way, on her lab test, it looks like she might be pregnant. Just like that. Yeah. I mean, I call him by name. I'm not going to say his name here, obviously, but I said, listen, uh, blank. I don't know how to tell you this, but based on the labs that we sent, I'm sure you're not aware. It looks like your wife may be pregnant. That doesn't change what we have to do for her right now. It doesn't change what she needs done to save her life right now. We will, to whatever extent we need to, take that in, into consideration with anesthesia and with the surgery, but it doesn't change what we need to do right now to save your wife. But I felt like you needed to know. Well, and, that, and let me just add, at this point, and not that you would have changed anything, she's already received some mega doses of radiation, getting the CT angiogram and all this other stuff. Right right? Unbeknownst to you that she's pregnant. Obviously you needed to do those and you, you got two CTs, right? Cause she had an expansion of hemorrhage because right. she transferred in. Right. Right. And wow. I, you know, I, I later talked with him about those things and I explained how, even if we had known she was pregnant, I wouldn't hesitate a moment to get those scans because pregnant or not, you know, that's life-saving diagnostic information, just like this is life-saving surgery. And, and he understood all that. But, um, as a, as I just said, and as I told him at the time, I said, I don't think this changes one bit what needs to happen next, but I felt like it would be wrong not to tell you before we proceed. And he understood that and agreed, but that's where his, his composure broke and, and he became very emotional as is completely understandable. Um, so wow, then we so got her down to, yeah, we got her down to the operating room. Um, I had been in close communication with my chief on call that night who came in, we did um, an emergency timeout. So be because of the acuity of this process, he began surgery before the attending arrived, which was appropriate. Um, they did an excellent surgery. They decompressed her rapidly. They found this strange aneurysm-ish thing in the distal blood vessel and clipped it. We got her back upstairs, uh, left the bone off, a decompressive hemicrany. And interestingly, now we can start moving a little bit quicker with the story. It, it turns out that she was not, in fact, pregnant. Um, it turns out that she had a gynecologic malignancy that, you know, gave a false elevation to the pregnancy test lab studies. Uh, it had also gone to her lung, and there were small seeds of it in the brain, which we think may have caused this strange aneurysm-ish uh, vascular abnormality. 
Wow. Crazy. Yeah. That's classic, right? The, right. the, the HCG, right? Beta HCG elevated with, with exactly. these uh, embryonic type tumors. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So crazy. You know, we got gynecology involved. Um, she was treated and she's been back for her cranioplasty. She got the bone back on. Once she got the bone back on, her CSF dynamics were off, so she needed a shunt. But uh, we saw her as recently as a couple months ago, and she's doing really, really well. She never really lost language function, like I said, or wakefulness and arousal. Her right side was always strong. Her left side at this point is uh, anti-gravity or better uh, throughout uh, arm and leg muscle groups. She's doing really well. And every time she comes back, I give her husband a call because it's still pandemic rules and, and they can't come in. And I, I call and say, hey, remember me? Well, look, we made it. She's doing pretty great. And, and we kind of catch up. It's a, it's kind of a, a crazy roller coaster with uh, that patient and her family in the past year. Can she walk? Uh, I believe she walked at rehab. Yeah. you. I think with assistive device, like a walker, but yeah. And how about her personality changes? Anything anything different about her that you detected? Not, I mean, I never knew her before this all happened, but I, I think at least once I did ask her husband that kind of later in the course. And I remember after the first surgery, when she was awake in her ICU room recovering, she was pretty much her normal self. Cause at one point we did get her husband and we snuck him in because she, you know, young family, we still thought she was pregnant at first and she nearly died. So we made an exception and got him in. And I, this is going to sound really cheesy, but there was a moment where they were just standing there holding hands and she, you know, she had her head shaved and we all know what a hemicraniectomy patient looks like. She had her head shaved and the flap and she couldn't move her left side. And they were just standing there staring at each other with tears in their eyes because she was alive. And that was just a, a beautiful, beautiful moment in time. Wow. So, I mean, obviously this is, was not only life-saving, but the diagnosis being made to save her from the secondary or primary threat, depending on how you look at it, which was the cancer. Um, I mean, just a note to people who are not neurosurgeons. I mean, this story brings up so many elements and issues. Um, and, and I remember Marty Weiss saying when I was a, a resident at USC, when he was chairman, he said, you know, the neurosurgeon, and I apologize to the primary care doctors out there, is the only primary care doctor. And mm. what he meant by that was not that, of course, we don't need primary care doctors. What he meant was that there was something different about what we have to do in our relationship with patients to understand them. And in your story, I think about, number one, being a great diagnostician to pick this up. Number two, being available in the middle of the night um, to do this. And it's not just because you're a resident. Um, it this is not all residents are the same. And then number three, the technical expertise to, to, to execute upon this successfully. As you said, it was an emergency surgery. And number yeah. four, the compassion to take care of her afterwards in a proper way. And all these things, you know, I, I was rounding this morning at the hospital and it's a Saturday and I was talking to one of the residents with me and I said, listen, you know, you've already, he, he had saved someone's life basically two nights before this resident. He's a PGY2 like you, like you were in the story. And I, I always say that the difference between a really good resident and a, and a not so good resident is lots of dead people or destroyed people. <laughs> and, and that's not the case for other specialties. I'm not, not, not that we're the only specialty like that, but it's especially 
problematic for us, right? When we have a resident that just isn't on par, the carnage of that person during training and then later as an attending is, yeah. is massive. And, and, and I, I will push very heavily back against the people out there who say, oh yeah, doctor's a doctor. Or it's just another day. And it's like, no, 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 no. You have no idea about what it is that we have to do. And then the fact that you were just a little bit less, less on top of things or a little bit less smart or a little less diligent or a little less technically capable. And none of us are perfect, but it is, and I'm sorry, I'm ranting a little bit. It is the difference between life and death, harm and cure. I mean, we, we see it every day and it's not about just being nice and compassionate. It's, it's not as simple as that. Yeah. You know, I often think to myself and I tell myself, I think as a comfort that we have a good enough system in place that once the patient gets to where we are, then the right thing will be done and the patient will be taken care of. And we all jockey for the privilege of being the one to do it. Right. So the, the, the good outcome is not in question. It's just which of us gets to be the instrument or the vehicle for that good outcome to happen. And I think that by and large within neurosurgical residency, I, I need to think and believe that that's true because we put such stock in our selection process. Uh, like Dr. Giannata said when we had him on that fine filter of the residency selection process. But I think I tell myself that so I can sleep at night, but there has to be some difference uh, between maybe the ability or maybe just the willingness of people to do the right thing uh, in the middle of the night and recognize the thing that needs to be done. And I, I think that we do have a good enough system in place that maybe that's not often measured in uh, life and death, but maybe it's often measured in ways that we can't see where something gets done more quickly or more slowly, depending on how quickly the resident on call picks something up. And maybe that translates into some qualitative difference in a patient's outcome because we're dealing with the nervous system. And so if there's a delay and something's under pressure for an extra hour or two, maybe some more cells are lost and that patient doesn't have the recovery that they might have. And we'll never see that and we'll, ne we'll never know that, but maybe that's a physical process that is happening. And oh, and even, even basic skills. I mean, it's not just neurosurgery. Like, you know, I, I know lots of residents who've done tracheotomies in a, in a CT scanner. I've saved the, the lives of many people just out in the community, not as, a, not as being a doctor, but like, and I'm going to go, go out on a limb here, but some of the people who live around me, just because I was there and able to do it. And, um, you know, I was listening to Joe Rogan this morning. I don't, I don't listen to him a lot, but I started to listen to him again. I know he's very controversial right now with the whole thing with Spotify and that, that, that episode he did. And, and it's, it's very complicated, but he had Andy Stumpf on, and I guess we were talking about this a little bit before this recording. And, and he's mm -hmm. asking Andy Stumpf, who's a former Navy SEAL about like, do you think that the quality of the recruits is different? What's the end result of the product after the Navy SEAL training, et cetera, et cetera. And we have confidence, as you're saying, in that training process, but it does make a difference because I, I can tell you right now, just of the 21 residents, there are some that I would rather not have around uh, because I know that they're just not as good. And there's some that I, I, I am privileged to be around because that little extra bit of care or attention or intelligence or technical skill absolutely makes a difference. And I think that's one of the things that makes our field so fascinating and, and such the topic of, of movie dramas and TV shows and whatnot. It's that razor's edge that we live yeah. on. 
Yeah, and if and I think a key factor that we haven't touched on yet, but is critical when you talk about trach in a CT scanner or uh, you know a neck incision with a hematoma that you open up, or this case in particular, and I'll, I'll say why it's not just the technical ability and recognizing what needs to happen. It's the willingness to do it and the lack of hesitation. Because there comes a point where you recognize this is what has to happen next and you either hesitate or you just do it. And I think that a lot of what you're talking about relies on that innate quality in someone who once they know this is right, this is what needs to happen, they just act without hemming and hawing. And I do want to take my hat off to my chief that night who has been on the podcast, Dan Edelman, who was the chief that night. And as we were talking, he saw the scans, no hesitation, that blood's got to come out. He came in, the attending wasn't in yet because he lived further away, no hesitation. He said, emergency timeout, we're proceeding. And he just took care of the lady. And I think, sure, that says a lot for residency selection. It says good things about training at Rush, but I think it also says something about that quality within him that had to be partly innate and had to be partly learned through the years of residency and assuming that senior role where he said, this lady needs to be decompressed. I know how to do it. I'm going to do it and not hesitating in that moment. You're exactly right. And, you know, you hear a lot like in psychology class about those cases of, of a woman being raped on the streets of New York in plain daylight in front of 40 people and nobody stops and does anything. Or people say, well, if you were the guy who was faced with the terrorists on the train in Paris, you wouldn't do anything. And I, I push back and I'm not trying to say we're better than other people. Absolutely not. I, I will tell you, if I see something like that going on, I absolutely will act. And, and I would just expect that any real neurosurgeon would, and, and it wouldn't be a matter of like, oh, I just didn't see it or I ignored it or I don't have the moral courage or physicality to do it, right? Because there's a physical piece of it too. It's not just like call the police. It's like there's a physical presence as, as you did with this lady. You had to take her to the or. It's not a purely cognitive, didactic discussion. Oh, let's push a button. It's like you had to actually lose sleep. You had to push people who are obstructing you always, Right to right. get the CT scan, to get the labs, to go to the OR. And it is energy and and not just physical, but also mental energy and emotional energy. And and I hope that we all go to that wellspring of the cases like you've kindly shared with us to say, wow, you know, I, I would do this over again and again and again. And this is what I was saying to our resident Sumed Shah, who's awesome, awesome guy. Ah, uh, Sumed. You know, Sumed, right? He, I said, look, you, you saved a lot of lives just in your first two and two and a half years. And, and that should keep you going to save many more. Um, yeah. And, but- I, and I think there, there has to be some element of self-selection where the people who will take action in those scenarios, we're the ones who sign up to have this job to begin with. And then I think the repeated experience of seeing what happens when people fail to act and seeing what happens when people don't fail to act appropriately just ingrains that quality that we all bring to the table, which is somebody's got to step up and do what needs to be done. And I I think the last thing I want to say about this story, because even when there's a good outcome and things go well, I think it's important to to think through things and try to find some lesson for the future besides just patting yourself on the back and saying, hey, great save. And what really struck me that whole night as I, you know, repeated scans, getting the OR and everything, you just said, oh, I'm sure people were obstructing you, getting in your way, all this stuff. Actually, the whole hospital that night rallied for this woman. And every single person, 
I'll say it. Rush is a very good hospital. We have great support staff, excellent nursing. It's a wonderful place to work. Oftentimes, there is a lot of red tape and a lot of people who are trying to hold you back because they they think that you need to check boxes and dot your I's, cross your T's. That night, everybody who happened to be at work, just they were people who get it and everybody fell in line. I have never had a smoother experience getting things done that needed to happen. Multiple trips to CT, down to the OR, anesthesia, everybody that we normally complain about slowing us down, fire on all cylinders. And what I what I've come away with after experiencing that one night is that I now have this standard in my mind, this one perfect experience of someone who needed help and everything just went perfectly and everyone helped and did what needed to happen. And now every other experience just disappoints me because now I have this standard. And so every other patient that comes in and I know in my mind, these nine things have to happen in this order and oh God, now this person's getting in my way. And no, please just come up at, come up to the CT scanner because we need the scan now and blah, blah, blah. Everything pales in comparison to how smoothly that night went. And it's like a it, it's like an elusive uh, dream that I have now to, ch- I'm constantly chasing it now. Every patient that comes in, I'm like, come on, we can be this good. We can be this good. And we always fall short. Well, along those lines, maybe you can uh, give a little teaser about what uh, is coming up next week. You know what? That Along those lines is a really good way to put it, because if you think about having seen, at least in, in my limited experience and, and from the perspective of junior residents getting things done, having seen the top of the mountain and seeing where everybody does the right thing, everybody does their job well, and it secures a good outcome for a, a patient in a precarious scenario, Obviously, if we can experience that once in a lifetime or now and again, there's the other side of that coin, which is people not doing their job, people not doing the right thing, and unfortunately, tragically, bad outcomes happening for patients. And so we've said many times on this show that one of the, if not the greatest impetus for us starting this podcast was the Dr. Death phenomenon and the story of Christopher Dunch. Uh, that was made so popular and, and dramatized so well with the Dr. Death podcast. And we started the show, maybe not directly in answer to it, but as a way to put neurosurgeons in the media, talking about what we do every day, why we do it, how we feel about it, uh, to have another voice out there about neurosurgery in the popular media. That was a big reason we did the show. We've had a a couple episodes where we talked about that phenomenon. I mentioned before our first episode with Dr. Steve Giannata at USC talking about the selection process and how we normally make sure people like uh, Chris Dunch don't make it into the field and hurt people like that. And uh, now we have another very exciting episode coming out, kind of delving back into the Dr. Death story. Um, and so I really encourage all of our listeners next week, one week from uh, today when this airs, We're going to have a phenomenal interview uh, that Dr. Wang did with one of the key players in the story. I'm not going to say who, so there's a bit of surprise, but one of the key players in the Dr. Death story who was there at the time in the trial, uh, really closely integrated with the story as it unfolded, uh, talking about the experience of that person in life and, and in his career, but also the experience of recognizing what was happening with Chris Dunch and kind of as we talked about today, the willingness and the moral impetus to stand up 
say something and do something about this person who is hurting his community. So I think this is going to be a really phenomenal and exciting episode. I would encourage uh, none of you listening to miss it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.